Hi, everyone. This is Steve Bowes. We've got a great show for you this week. I talked to the authors Bill Bonvillian and Sanjay Sarma from MIT, who've written a new book called Workforce Education, A New Roadmap. And we'll be talking about the challenges arising across multiple industries, the challenges of training workers for new skills of the future, and how organizations can partner most effectively with educational institutions, government entities, and even their competitors to develop the workforce we need for the future. But before we get to that show, I do want to thank our show sponsors. This episode of the HR Happy Hour is made possible by WorkHuman. The world is watching the leaders of today and tomorrow. Modern employees want a workplace where they're respected, seen, appreciated, and heard, and they are demanding it. Employees have the right to a human workplace, and you have the power to create one. And thriving organizations like Cisco, Merck, and LinkedIn have realized the immense benefits of putting the human at the center of work. Get your copy of the book, Making Work Human, on Amazon. And we're also sponsored by our friends at Paychex, one of the leading providers of HR, payroll, retirement, and insurance solutions for businesses of all sizes. With the onset of COVID-19, Paychex quickly responded to support businesses and help them manage the new challenges brought on by the pandemic. The Paychex COVID-19 Help Center is the ultimate comprehensive resource hub featuring articles, videos, scenario tools, live webinars, and podcasts that provide valuable and up-to-date insight on stimulus measures, managing a remote or hybrid workforce, travel restrictions, state-specific guidance, and plenty more. To access this valuable information, go to payx.me slash help center today. So thanks to Work Human and Paychecks. Thanks to our guests from MIT, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show. My name is Steve O. So great that you're with us today. I got a special show today. I'm flying solo. Uh, Trish is out on assignment today, but we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is the labor market, the workforce, challenges organizations have, challenges employees have in navigating their own careers. We've got two great guests today. They are the co-authors of Workforce Education, A New Roadmap. First, I'd like to welcome Bill Bonvillian. He's a lecturer at MIT in the program in Science, Technology, and Society, and Senior Director of Special Projects at MIT's Office of Digital Learning. He's co-author of Structuring an Energy Technology Revolution and Advanced Manufacturing, both published by the MIT Press. Bill, how are you today? Good, thanks. Awesome. And we also have with us Sanjay Sarma. He is Fred Fort Flowers and Daniel Fort Flowers, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at MIT, where he is also Vice President for Open Learning. He's the co-author of The Inversion Factor and Grasp the Science of Transforming How We Learn. Sanjay, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Great to see both of you guys. So first up, the question I always ask when we have authors on the podcast, it's, it's a simple one, kind of a softball, hopefully, which is uh, why this book? Why take this on? This is a massive book, a big project. I bet it took, I'm going to guess it probably took over a year or two of your time to put together. But why take on rethinking or uh, redesigning workforce education? Yeah, maybe I'll answer that by saying that. So as vice president for open learning at MIT, um, we at MIT um, have done um, a lot of work on online education, everything from the science of learning, which we might talk about later, to the technology of learning, you know, online courses, MOOCs, massive open online courses, new credentials, micromasters, blockchain-based proofs for these credentials, virtual reality, augmented reality, and tons and tons of content. I sit on the board of edX and MIT has produced over 180 courses over the, just the last few years. And what we began to realize is two things. One is that A, the stuff works, it's very powerful. And B, the, a lot of the uh, students are, median age 27. In fact, that's the median age of the population. 
So we be, I began to realize that, my God, this is very much a workforce thing as much as it is higher ed or even, uh, you know, uh, secondary ed, you know. So so I reached out to uh, my good friend and colleague, Bill, and I said, Bill, uh, we need to figure out where workforce education is. And we got a grant from the Schmidt Foundation to research this. And um, and so that's how we got going. And uh, one thing led to another and ended up with this book. Bill, do you want to just uh, fill in some of the details? Sure. It's, um, you know, this is a set of issues. I had been studying manufacturing in the U.S. And as you know, Steve, it went through a big decline between 2000 and 2010, we lost one third of the manufacturing jobs. And that had been a big pathway into the middle class for lots of people, you know, particularly men who don't have college degrees. And with the decline of manufacturing, median income started coming down for men without, uh, with a, without a high school diplomas or with a high school diploma or some college. The numbers were pretty startling. So we began thinning out the middle class and yet there were jobs that were developing, but they required higher levels of skills. So, you know, there was an opportunity, but the training system wasn't there to move the talent to where it was needed and uh, to get the talent ready for what the possibilities might be. So we have a real, we have quality jobs that are evolving, but we don't have the talent base that's getting trained to fill them. So it just struck us as a real national need to kind of get on top of this problem. And the coronavirus has just made it much worse. Yeah, I read I read in the notes uh, or the introduction uh, to the fact that you were kind of a good chunk of the way through this work, right, before the pandemic hit. So even that like, had to be sort of addressed midstream a little bit about what that might mean to uh, all these challenges. And I suppose uh, making them even more uh, acute and more uh, needing to be solved even faster. Yeah, a little doubt about that. You know, if you look at various industries, uh, retail, manufacturing, a whole bunch of industries. Uh, the trends were already there, as Bill said. It's the polarization of uh, the um, uh, the or the wage gap. So you know the middle class is getting hollowed out. More people moving to lower wage jobs, on the higher wage jobs increasing, and coronavirus just accelerates a bunch of those trends. Whether it's you know travel, tourism, hospitality, aerospace, retail, you know, etc. Some uh, industries are actually doing well, like healthcare. You know, obviously telehealth. You know. Um, anything digital is hot. But then actually, there's this McKinsey report and other uh, studies that show that even at the in the lower wage categories, it's becoming harder and harder now for people to shift jobs. So online education um, and um, uh, workforce education more fundamentally becomes um, a national, in my view, almost a, it's like the GI Bill after World War II. You know, we're coming out of a shell-shocked, uh, shell-shocking period. And this is our next uh, challenge. Yeah, that's uh, thank you, Sanjay and Bill, for that. Um, since this audience for the HR Happy Hour podcast is, is primarily HR people, talent people working in organizations, I'd like to think a little bit more about some of the employer-related issues here. And one of the things that I took from from reading is that the the level of cooperation required by employers with educational institutions, state and local government, maybe federal government, maybe even their competitors, right, in their local region in order to facilitate some of the workforce development programs that you talk about in the in the book. I, I feel like, my, you know, I've, I've been around HR people for a long time in organizations. I feel like they don't want to share that way very much. They, they're very proprietary with their data and their information and they don't want their competitors to know, hey, we can't find certain type of uh, technician or a certain type of engineer. Uh, I'd love for you maybe to talk about, I know there's some good examples in the book about 
how that can be successfully navigated, how an employer in the U.S. can actually open up and, and work, work better with other members of the, of the ecosystem. And I can start on that one, Steve. Um, you know, the creating an alliance between employers and groups of employers, as you suggest, and education institutions, that looks like the best practice. And, you know, it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's not just that employers don't like to work together. They're worried that their competitor is going to hire the person they train the minute they finish paying all the money to train them, right? So there's a deep competitive reason why it's hard to get collaboration across employers. Uh, and that's a longstanding problem in, in, the, in the U.S. Uh, but on the other hand, we've got the entry of all these new technologies into the workplace. I mean, people are familiar with the IT-based technologies, uh, but there's more, right? Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of new you know, advanced materials and photonics and power electronics and a whole suite of new fields. Yeah, there's a great example. Sorry to interrupt. There's a great example in the book about Steelcase, the uh, office manufacturing yeah. uh, facility, uh, office furniture manufacturing facility, and how much different it's become in just a short amount of time, quieter, safer, less manual work, right? Inside that facility, but it's still a factory. Right. And so, you know, many fields are, are seeing the entry of these new technologies and Historically in the U.S., particularly, you know, small companies would train their own, right? But now it's a really big leap, right? And they're not ready to train their own, right? They don't have the training skills in-house. And, you know, how do you get that? You really need to collaborate and you need to team up with area education institutions. And look, they can take some of the cost burden and some of the organizational burden and, and train specialized trainers to meet the needs, not just of one employer, but of groups of employers across regions. So the Chamber of Commerce, for example, has got a big program they're organizing nationwide to try and bring employers together as groups to, in effect, share these risks, share the cost. And what they're finding is that if they pull employers together and everybody's in the same boat, sharing the same program, there's a lot less poaching that mm -hmm. goes on because they get to know each other and they get to rely on each other and they're teaming up with each other. Um, so that looks like it may be a, a way around the kind of collaboration problem that we've got, you know, deep in our system. Yeah, what I'll add to that is, first, there's sort of a vertical uh, coordination that needs to happen. Students need to know what the, where the jobs are. Faculty need to know what to teach. And companies need to communicate what they need. So that's sort of one thing, challenge. The other challenge, to uh, Bill's point, is that companies Companies don't compete with each other over, over water in America. They do in other countries, but they don't. They don't compete over electricity. Those are pre-competitive. Human capital has to become pre-competitive. It's a tide that lifts all boats. And if you look at the European um, apprenticeship systems, the way they're run is that you could do an apprenticeship at, uh, say, um, BMW, and you get a certificate. And that certificate doesn't bind you to work at BMW. Okay. You, know, you, you get a job at another company in Schwabia, you know, in Stuttgart, you know, Mercedes or some other company. So uh, that is a more generous but uh, long-term better approach that we need to sort of get into. And that takes coordination, takes trust, and it takes the building of uh, capacity. And unfortunately, that's been, um, uh, that's, we don't have that here. Um, it's become a bit of a vacuum. Yeah, Sanjay, I'm glad you mentioned apprenticeships because that was kind of the next bullet I wrote down that I wanted to to ask about. Uh, there's a big, there's a long chapter in the book about apprenticeships and 
gets into uh, how they're used in places like Germany specifically and some other places in Europe. And, and, and I guess I, I guess the question is this, whether or not you think the barriers or the differences, uh, and used very successfully for the most part by, by most observers, right, the German system um, of apprenticeship. What do, you th- do you think that ch- the differences in sort of how the, the decentralization of our kind of labor market or, or our, our attitudes towards it maybe, and, and just social conservatism, I don't mean politically, but just, just it's a different culture here than in Germany. I wonder if you think that it's just too different for programs or, or systems is a better way to say it, like they have in Germany to really take more root here in the USA on a wider scale to increase the numbers of apprenticeships, which you point out in the book is extremely low relative to the size of the labor force. The German, the German model is very hard to replicate in the US. I mean, they are, they've got a different societal organization. You know, in, in Germany, kids make decisions about their careers at age 10, right? We're not going to do that here. You know, we believe in second chances and constantly recreating new opportunities. But can we adopt the idea, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is break down the barriers between education and work, right? Break down that work-learn barrier and make connections between the two so that kids coming through the system or new entrants coming through the system have a pathway they can follow to get to the kind of career opportunities and quality jobs that that will help them, you know, help them advance on careers. And, you know, our education system has just this sharp break between what you learn in school and the workplace. There There are just no pathways leading between the two in our system by and large. There's some exceptions in the construction trades. There's a long established apprenticeship system, but really nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And that would help kids tremendously. Look, I saw a, um, a program in South Carolina. These were small companies who came together, a group of small companies came together and they were busy competing with big brand name companies in the Charleston area. You know, they were up against Boeing and Mercedes and Volvo and the small companies were having trouble attracting talent. And they came to the local community college called Trident Technology, uh, Technical College, Trident Tech. And they said, look, we got a problem. We want to start an apprenticeship program in the junior year. Well, it so happens South Carolina has an apprenticeship program. It really starts at the community college level. It's one of the few states that's got one. Okay. Uh, But they wanted to start it early. They wanted to have a youth apprenticeship program, these six small companies. They thought that if if they started working with the kids in high school, they'd be much more loyal and stay with them. And it started up and... You know, it was transformative. The companies were incredibly happy with it. And are, there's now 130 companies, but there's or more. Um, but you see what it does for the kids, right? These kids are, you know, in regional high schools, sometimes rural high schools. We all know how disruptive and antisocial in a way high school can be, right? And these kids go to, you know, high school in the morning and they're told by their employers, you got to take math and science, right? You're going to need those. And so they do that. Then around the midday, they come to the local community college and they get the technical courses that the employers in the area have worked with the community colleges in developing, right? So they get their skill courses at the community college. And then in the later part of the afternoon, they go to work for several hours at the company. They're making very good money for high school. They're like king of the hill, <laughs> But most important, they're out in a completely different age group and culture, right? They're, 
The average age in community college, they're in with community college students is 20, 29. The average age of the workforce where they're working is typically 35 to 45, right? So they're with much more mature environments with a much deeper outlook on kind of life than you can kind of get hanging out in high school. So it's really transformative for the kids. They're on pathways. The employers will typically, they finish a year of community college by the time they get out of high school. Okay. The employer will typically spring for the next year, right? So then they've got an associate degree. They're on their way into quality work. Maybe I'll just add a couple of things. You asked about our culture mm-hmm. um, in this country. I think we're very individualistic, but I think if you take um, so Germany or Switzerland or some of the Nordic countries, there's a sense of community that is we need to train our young people. So the companies contribute to that. There's a sort of a social responsibility to contribute. So that's one. The second is in order to contribute, you have to be a mini professor. I mean, if you're in a company and you're going to train someone, you have to have the training to do that. You don't have that system either. You can't just start apprenticing. You can, but it's better if you have a sense of what it means to give a certificate at the end. The difference between an internship and an apprentice is an internship, you just write in your LinkedIn page, I was an intern, but an apprenticeship gives you a certificate. And that has to be sort of standardized. We don't have that unless you do what Bill talked about. And the third thing is uh, the word vocation comes from uh, vocare, you know, from, uh, from Latin, which means your calling, voice, it's a calling. And we need to sort of dignify more in this country, I think. And we need to expose young people to vocation. You know, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And there's a tradition of that in some of these countries, because you could be a machinist or you could be a banker. There's no difference. Uh, in this country, we've sort of created um, a bit of a, um, I think we need to sort of even the playing field a little bit. Yeah. Sanjay, thank you for that. And, and Bill as well. And you're kind of leading me into kind of the next area I wanted to talk about a little bit, which was like in places, like you said, in Germany and, and some of the Nordic countries, et cetera, that have these programs, it's there's no, I don't know if stigma is the right word, but you, like, I feel like in this country, we've got this in certain parts of it anyway, right? There's a big um, push for every kid must go to college, four-year university, right? And, and get that degree. And there's lots of data. You have a lot of it in the book. And there's a lot of data we've seen about the, for folks who do that, who go down that path. And and let's not get into what, what your degree was in and what you majored in necessarily and parse the data that, that deeply here, but just to say that the, the wage gap for folks who do pursue that path and get that four-year degree or even a more advanced degree is significantly higher, right, in this country than it is for folks who do not, who just says, say, maybe have a high school degree or maybe a high school in some college. And I think you point out in the book as well, if I remember correctly, the gap's getting even wider in the last a couple of decades, right? So there's a big kind of uh, social slash economic set of uh, arguments that say, no, this is what we emphasize here in the USA, right? For our kids, I'm not going to be. I'm a. I'm not going to say I'm not a hypocrite. My son's studying at BU right now. I'm not certain that's the best choice, right, for him. But I grew up kind of trained to train into him and put that into his head that that's what not you know not BU necessarily, but just he had to go down that path. And but that leads to not only some other that leads to a lot of other problems that we talk you talk about in the book, which is uh, just this idea of the barbell, right? And uh, and how jobs are changing and, and due to some technological factors, many jobs that were sort of mid-level jobs, middle skill jobs are, are getting or winnowing out. We either don't have the, enough people to fill those jobs or technology is usurping many of those jobs. And people at the high end of the scale, right, are doing much, much better. And people at the lower ends of the scale, first by the global recession, uh, the financial crisis, and then by the pandemic are really taking it much worse. So I feel like these things are intertwined. I'm not sure if that's even, I'm being a bad host because I'm not really asking a question. I'm making an observation, but 
maybe you guys can comment a little bit about what you think about uh, the impacts of this, where we don't really support these middle skill jobs and these, these pathways through apprenticeships and other ways to get to get to, to value these vocations. Steve, you really read the book. You got the story down. I, the, I um, loved it. it. It was right up my alley when I heard about it. So yes, I did. The, um, you know, we really are creating a big problem for ourselves. We're thinning out the middle class. And historically, the great strength of this country has been a really strong middle class and a tremendous amount of economic mobility as a result of that, that opportunities abounded. But we've been walking away from that model. And the big dividing line, as you know, is the college degree. And you know, kids are making very important decisions about their lives at ages, you know, 16, 17, and 18. And, you know, they're going to make a choice there one way or the other about higher education. And that's going to be largely determinative of their economic and, and, and frankly, overall well-being for the rest of their lives. And look, only 25% or so of the population has a college degree. What are we going to do? Leave everybody else behind? We've got to develop a strong alternative system. Uh, we really, it's its really a national task and a lot of things are at stake as a result of that. The kind of well-being of the country, I think, is at stake around this. And can we create new pathways into good opportunities and good jobs and new suites of credentials that go with those that are respected and understood and transferable so that people can move from place to place and job to job with recognized skill sets that are understood by employers? Can we try to create that kind of system here? It's not mission impossible. Um, and, and a lot is at stake here on the outcome. Yeah, I 100% agree. And maybe I'll just say that uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more, more barbell the barbell, the skinnier the middle, the more you want your kid to get a college degree. Um, and the more it's sort of, uh, and the less people are the, the other end can afford it. But I think the college degree in some respects is uh, going to become outdated because this social contract that somehow... You can study for four years and you're prepared for the rest of your life. It's sort of like saying you can go to the gym for four years and you're going to be fit for the rest of your life. I wish. You know? yeah. I don't have to go to the gym three times a week, whether you like it or not, buddy. You know. So I think that we need to smear the college across life. And this is why micro-credentialing and all these things are very important. For that, we need systemically to make some agreements, including hiring um, you know, changing our hiring approaches. Yeah, we're going to need, you know, as Sanjay is driving towards our higher education institutions are going to have to push towards lifelong learning. I mean, there's just no choice about it. The technologies are rich and deep enough, and they're going to be oncoming for a long period of time. We're going to have to keep upskilling ourselves in all fields, frankly. And that means higher education is going to have to really embrace lifelong learning. And they're going to have to anyway, because, you know, the demographics where they, where they have focused, you know, 18 to, say, 25-year-olds, that's a declining demographic. We're going to have a lot of schools closing unless they figure out that they need to do lifelong learning. They're really going to have to make this shift. And in turn, we can adopt a lot of existing institutions. Community colleges can already do this. They can work, you know, 24-7, 365 days a year. They don't necessarily have to follow, you know, an agricultural calendar of semesters, right? They're already, they're already well positioned to do lifelong learning. Uh, but we can start to adopt other institutions, you know, like high school, secondary schools, have technical schools, have technical high schools, uh, have comprehensive high schools with technical training programs in them that are that operate year round. We can start to think of kind of new models that really serve this lifelong learning that we're going to have to do anyway. 
and there's some great examples of some of these things in the book that employers specifically who we're, we're really talking to today can think about how they can start to make a dent here and make a difference. Because I'm going to tell you what, I'm in, I'm in the HR space, right? So this is where I've been for the last 15 or so years. All, and you guys might imagine before the pandemic, all I, uh, every other conversation I had was about, we can't, we can't fi- find the people we need. We can't find them. War for talent, all that stuff, right? Unemployment rate was incredibly low. No one can find anybody. And Sanjay mentioned hiring. And one of the things that has come up in the HR space in the last couple of years was this, this artificial barrier. We talk about the divide of the college degree, right? And, and how that impacts your, your earning potential over your career. But so many organizations were putting up that artificial barrier to opportunities by saying, you must have this degree. They had no idea if that even mattered, right, to the ultimate success of the candidates that they brought in and they eventually hired. Some organizations, thankfully, some really big ones are now dropping that as a prerequisite across the board. Now, obviously, they're still hiring for certain skills and capabilities, right, in certain roles that you must be able to to demonstrate, but just the fact to have the degree being a barrier, as you said, if only 25% of people in the country have that degree, if I put that required BS degree in related field, right, as my job requirement, I've eliminated 75% of the workplace workforce for that for that job already. I didn't know you could say BS on a show like this, but <laughs> let me just say that uh, the, I think the interesting thing here is that uh, it's you're not doing a service to yourself, you're not doing a service to the individual, because if they got a BS, then they just spent a lot of money on it, right? And they may not be using all those skills. And, you know, you've said, and they have loans. So I think over-credentialing is, is a barrier we need to uh, really take on uh, uh, extensively across yeah. industries. Towards the end of the book, guys, you have a set of recommendations, right, for governments, for educational institutions, uh, and also for employers. I'd love for you, maybe, I know we've talked about some examples, right? What what employers can do and how they can be involved. We talked about collaboration with the ecosystem. This does feel like if I'm an individual, say, HR leader listening to this uh, show today, I, I've, I must admit I'd feel a, bit, a little bit daunted, right? By how difficult it seems to be me, just me in my company to start to make a difference in some of the areas you talked about. I, I'd love for you to maybe share with our audience a couple of the recommendations that you have for employers specifically about how we can improve workforce education and training and really create more opportunity for people who, who deserve that opportunity. Steve, there's a big opportunity for employers, as we said before, to start working together to a, to a greater extent. Um, there are apprenticeship programs that can be shared, and it doesn't have to be a full formal apprenticeship. It can be what we can call apprenticeship light. Uh, we've talked about some of the elements that need to be in that. Uh, but that's that's a very rich way to get employees to kind of test them out, see if they're going to work out, see if they can get the skills that are going to be needed. Uh, that's potentially an advantage for employers. And so this apprenticeship light or full apprenticeship programs are really something that I think employers are going to increasingly consider. And if they're small companies, they're going to have to team up with others in particular for these. So there's work on online and new educational technologies that Sanjay is really expert on. Um, that you know can improve training capabilities and employers can sponsor these uh, as well as education institutions can. There's work that employers can do in collaborating with each other to develop standards and the certificates that go with those standards so that they make sure they're getting employees with the credentials they want. So there's big, big possibilities here for employers to start to change the system in ways that are beneficial to them. And then there's a lot that can be done by employers working with area institutions and community colleges are going to be key here. 
short courses. You know, we've seen employers team up with community colleges to develop short, you know, seven, 10, 15, maybe 20 week course programs that are really geared to the kind of technologies an employer may want to see introduced and other employers in the region may want to see introduced. They can team up with community colleges for the training itself. Mm-hmm. So if the community college is building a talented training staff, they can use the community college to help and help upskill their incumbent workers, not just, you know, get new entrant workers. So increasingly community college is going to be looking at training incumbent workers, but the collaboration with industry for the community college is going to be critical. And the area education institutions can be arrangers of this. They can help provide the organizational link that brings employers together along with the ed edu- institutions. So we're seeing yeah. strong community colleges embark on exactly that kind of course. Yeah, and I'm not an expert in this area whatsoever, but I have some friends who work in the, in the community college field, and I got to believe they've been struggling as, a, as, a, as an industry, <laughs> to say it that way, the community college field, because of uh, pandemic and other things even before that, right? When the economy, oddly enough, right, when the economy was really, really strong and unemployment was really, really low, the community colleges were kind of struggling, this person would tell me, because people didn't feel like they had to go to community college, they could go get a job, right? And anyway, that's a, a conversation for another day, but uh, I, I appreciate, uh, Bill, you sharing some of those recommendations uh, well, as well. if the community college, Steve, is going to be able to train for their higher skills, then it becomes a real place to go for both employers and students. And that's yeah. the key, is for the community colleges to do the expertise in these new oncoming areas. Yeah. Then, it becomes a, then it becomes a crucial instrument yeah. to advancing the whole system. Sanjay, any last thoughts from you? Maybe around the technology space as well. I and mean, there's some, there's some definitely some good stuff in the book we didn't get to around different how players could potentially leverage new and emerging technologies in more creative ways. Maybe we can talk about that for a bit. Look, uh, it's very hard to um, overstate the power of online education. Um, you know, if if you have a kid. Uh, today in high school, they're probably using everything from minute physics on YouTube to um, Quizlet, you know, and um, the, the, and of course, everyone's using Zoom. Uh, Zoom, of course, is um, sort of a stopgap. Really, it's the asynchronous videos. And these videos are 10 minutes, and you can bake a lot of cognitive psychology techniques in there that make it cognitively friendly and there's so much research because of what we understand about the, how the human brain works, how learning works. We're at the beginning, I think, of a transformation of the education landscape. And like in many things, just as Netflix is, you know, sort of taking over from Hollywood, right? Um, I think that theaters, movie theaters, online is this powerful medium and companies would be well served to take a very serious look at the amazing content and facilities and affordances already there and the ones that are coming down the pike because they're going to be game-changing. Great. Good stuff. Guys, uh, you could tell, uh, hopefully listeners could tell, I really love this book. I highly recommend it. It's called Workforce Education, A New Roadmap with Bill Von Villian and Sanjay Sarma from MIT, the authors. Uh, gentlemen, great uh, to learn more about the book. Great to talk about it uh, with you too. And I really do appreciate uh, you joining us today. Thank you. Lovely Thank to you. See you. All right, guys. Thanks so much. We'll put the link to the Amazon I feel like you can only get a book on Amazon these days. There are probably other places, but we'll put the Amazon link to the book in the show notes as well for folks to check that out. So uh, thanks so much for everybody for listening. I do want to thank our friends at Work Human and Paychecks, of course. And thanks everybody for checking out the show. We will see you next time. My name is Steve Bowes. 
and bye for now.